Welcome to Question Authority, where the best and brightest marketers teach brands about the art and science of questions. Today we're asking about behavioral science with Lily Koffler. Hey. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? Awesome. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast, speaking to all of the wonderful brands that are part of the Shopify ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lily, happy to have you on once again. So today you are talking about behavioral psychology and how that's applied to marketing and communications uh, programs. Is that is that accurate? That's absolutely right. And what I like to say is that what I'm really good at is blending the science of human behavior with the art of marketing and communications to tackle challenges big and small. How would you define like where you work usually or where people like you tend to work in, in a corporation or in an agency or in any kind of space? Like where do you guys fit in or do you not fit in? And is that part of the appeal? Ooh, I think there's an argument to be made for a little bit of both in my professional experience, which sort of started in academia, doing laboratory research, specifically on kind of how people make decisions about value over time, to then working sort of in the, in the agency capacity in broadcast advertising and digital. And now I have the pleasure of working in-house. I sort of work in decentralized finance and blockchain. And, and a product that's on our blockchain is an app called Valora, which is essentially turns crypto into usable money in all these delightful ways. So when you're talking about kind of the agency landscape of behavioral science, it, it very much exists as a capability, right? So it looks yeah. like a different way in, a different point of view, an emerging approach into tackling the briefs that are oriented on a uniquely behavioral challenge. And in an in-house capacity, it's definitely a choose your own adventure for, for brands and businesses. A lot of folks with this training sit in innovation hubs. Oftentimes it comes to life as a UX designer or as a strategist who just has a different type of training. And as the world changes and as, you know, marketing and comm starts to look ever more digital, there are just more opportunities for uh, diverse backgrounds and skill sets. And, and one of which that happens to be very effective is, is training in human behavior. Yeah, you know, that's what I find so interesting is that it's kind of like, as you pointed out, it's still very nascent to be using behavioral psych and, uh, and human behavior as in all manner of, of building your product and your brand. And so that's always kind of been my experience is that if it's not inside an agency who gets paid to do that kind of thing on, on a real thorough soup to nuts basis, then it's usually sitting in the path of least resistance at a, at a brand or something, right? Oh, where are your people who actually like study your customers? And it's like, Oh, wherever the leash is longest, basically, <laughs> like it could be someone in product, it could be mm -hmm. people in marketing, it could be, mm -hmm. it could even be customer, customer service. If they have a really strong manager and they have, and they have good performance metrics, then, you know, they get a lot more leverage to do what they want. But it is always funny to see where, like from brand to brand, as you skip along, like, oh, where are the people like me? Totally. And you know, the, the kind of awakening of behavioral science really started in the 1970s. Right. It's really young compared to what what these folks are doing in the real world. But what I always say is that marketing and communications and design professionals, they're sort of the 
the original behavioral scientists. Like yeah. they tested this stuff. They went into market. They learned, right? For sale signs should be read. They learned that without the neuroscientists then kind of going and proving it. And in my sort of experience in the applied world, what I found is that behavioral science just gives a language and a framework for how to think about this world. You know, somebody came up with an insight from customer research of, oh, people are afraid to switch their their brand because they don't want to regret that decision. When behavioral science land, I would call that anticipated regret. Mm. Same concept, same insight sort of pushing a data-driven mindset, putting the customer at the forefront of everything. And oftentimes my role at agencies and, and even somewhat in what I do today is just being the librarian of all that great research, mm-hmm. right? When data, it feels like such an important commodity and it is, and, and especially smaller brands, younger brands, oh, we don't have enough, we can't afford it. There is so much data about your customer out there that you can get in nimble and agile ways Enquire is one of them, but also this incredible literature of desk research is also there waiting for you. Yeah. Which unfortunately you might then have to hire an academic because it is very much written by academics and for academics. <laughs> but, but the insights most certainly apply to, to, to people like you and me. Here's a question too. Like you mentioned desk research. How would you go about, you're, you're, let's say you're a brand, just kind of given our customer base, where would you start? Like if you wanted to start doing, as you refer to as desk research? To think like a behavioral scientist, you want to start with the problem, right? Because getting that problem really, really targeted, really specific is then going to enable sort of these tactical approaches like doing desk research. Google is a fantastic tool. You can plug in questions big and small. If you then want to drill down a bit, that's when I would go from open door, regular Google to Google Scholar. Um, And what you want to do, this is my hack, is you search things like Decision sciences, psychology, you know, choose your choose your keyword of the day. And then you search PDF. And what Google Scholar will do is it'll sort of scrape all of these papers and the ones that are sort of free PDFs are available online. There's on the right hand side of the screen, it'll say PDF. And you click that and it sort of circumvents some of the the firewalls that that yeah. gatekeep a lot of this content. And then just start reading. Skim the abstract if it feels good. Do your best to work through the intro. I would skip all of the methods if I didn't have an academic background and just go to the conclusion. Look for papers that are more like literature reviews or qualitative because a lot of stuff is very experimental and it's about the experiment, not the outcome. Right. Um, and just have fun. Follow the citations, right? Maybe that paper isn't perfect, but they set a line in the abstract that really applied to you. They cited another paper. Go Google that paper. Find it on Scholar. There's probably a free PDF. And find the joy in the search. That's a good way to phrase it there, Lily, because I think a lot of folks would be surprised that, uh, I mean, you know, if you're willing to go down a wormhole in uh, Wikipedia or somewhere else on a topic, then, yeah, as much as this stuff might seem dry to a lot of folks who aren't used to it, to your point, I guarantee you'll start reading things and think like, wow, I never understood. I never knew that that's potentially is the way people behave. And then to start seeing the citations and the references to say like, okay, this is, this is getting really interesting now. I think as a founder of a lot of these direct consumer brands too, I feel the story that I hear often is like, we surveyed a couple hundred people in my own anecdotal background and knew there was a white space kind of thing. Um, And there's like this whole other world that 
you were just mentioning that, okay, you could probably dive a little bit deeper into more like research or already just call it already done research in this space. That's more on the academic side to help build a, a deeper mental model around a space that you're about to go launch a company in. Obviously the anecdotal aspect is probably the problem you're solving, but understanding how people have thought about the space in the past, I'd say is uber important and very few people do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think with something like a survey questionnaire, be it long or short, there's often an impulse to just throw out a question that you might actually already know the answer to. And you're just sort of there proving Mm. your hypothesis, which is important and great. And it's good to have data to pat back instinct. But you can also apply um, something like a desk research audit to to the upstream before the questions even go live to enable sort of new developments in questions, right? New ways of thinking. And the example I can share is when I was sort of back in communications consulting, we were working with a utility company, a water utility company that was all about, you know, how do we get people? It was it was in California. How do we get people in California to conserve water more regularly? Right. Mm-hmm. Super important from from a messaging and comms and creative perspective. It's oh, the environment, you know, it saved money, this, that, the other. But everything behavioral science has ever taught us is that speaking to the environment or speaking to cost savings isn't actually an effective motivator because you're talking pennies on the dollar and, you know, saving the environment is sort of this big challenge ahead. So what we did is we we had the opportunity to conduct survey research. But even before we got to that stage, I dove into the desk and went, what is it that really motivates people to save water? And then I can use uh, a really sharp survey question to justify or validate that hypothesis with this specific population. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the insight that I found was that people are more likely to do most things, uh, but in this case, sort of save water or, or exhibit what you would call pro-environmental behaviors, good environmental behaviors. If you use an appeal to somebody's sense of identity, right, that kind of virtue signaling of, you know, oh, uh, of course, I'm a Californian and Californians save water. Um, oh, of course, I'm a Texan, this famous campaign. Of course, I'm a Texan and Texans don't litter. That's that's actually a really famous campaign that really cleaned up the litter in the state of Texas with a, with a message that said, don't mess with my Texas and, you know, like, don't throw your trash out the window. Uh, Very effective. So it's appealing to the California identity. Let's test that among our customer base with the survey. And the question that we asked was, as a Californian, right? So you're sort of setting that context of, of it is your identity. As a Californian, how important is it for you to save water? I mean, results off the chart, right? Like in some ways, it's a hard question to say no to. And in a perfect world, I might have A-B tested it one where we didn't have Californian, you know, we didn't, we weren't working with you all, unfortunately, so we didn't quite have that agility. Um, but we proved the hypothesis. We put the campaign together. Um, so again, that lit search, I think, took me like eight hours, uh, which sounds like a lot of time, but actually it had a disproportionately high impact on the campaign and, and that work and hopefully uh, people's actual behaviors to save water, knock on wood. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> awesome. I don't know if it was a water heater, but there was this company that was trying to figure out how to increase sales for, it was something like a water heater or a dishwasher, something that is not mm-hmm. like uh, a car that lives in your driveway that kind of has that viral component to it. And they did a bunch of customer research and they landed on this idea of allowing these customers to put a sticker in their window that said they used like an energy efficient X. Yeah. 
Um, and like once one neighbor started putting a sticker on there was this kind of viral effect of, okay, they were able to like almost take over neighborhood. Was this, did we have this conversation, Mitch? Was this? No, not at all. But I, I wanted to keep nodding okay. so you feel good about it. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I think that was shown as like one of the reasons why tote bags, which seem like total, totally useless things, especially if you get seven. Totally useless. Oh, oh man. <laughs> hey, can I claim a pun? Not. Um, it's, it's the people's now. All right. Thanks. Well, we'll go, we'll go have these on it, I guess. But yeah, that like, why, why does that seem to work when it seems like they probably already have eight in their closet? And it's like, one of the things is like, well, now you have a way to say like, I use this thing, this product, this service that otherwise you wouldn't know that I use. Right. The red campaign, I think is a good example of that too. Right. Totally. Voting. Yeah. Voting. You get a sticker. Exactly. Your comment around like California one, it definitely sparks some ideas, but also we're, we do a fair amount of research on our end is like, how do we increase survey completion rates? And some brands have completion rates that are just off the charts, like mm. 80%, 90% plus. And our conclusion, like diving into load time, like number of options, like more or less your standard survey, survey analytics on the technical side, like have yet to be able to really prove why that's so high. And I think part of it is just the brand, the consumer is so excited to engage with the brand that they're more likely to then respond to the survey. And it's kind of to your, like as a Californian, it's like, what do you feel? It's like almost like as a new customer of X, can you answer this? And it's almost like increased engagement, but it's also allowing them to identify in a particular way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. The question writing, even for these short things is just so important uh, in extracting meaningful, but also a very high response rate. Absolutely. And, and that starts with sort of acknowledging the role that your brand plays or might be about to play in their lives and, and thinking carefully about the question in reference to that. The other mm-hmm. kind of thing I will say, and I just had this idea is that even if, you know, completion rates are comparatively low relative to other brands, which is almost hard to kind of make that apple and oranges comparison. You wouldn't want to. How else can I leverage that space as an opportunity, right? Or what else can I be doing by just asking that question to get people thinking about my brand differently, right? If you were to go out and say, if if you were to die tomorrow, please don't ever ask this if, you're <laughs> if you were to die tomorrow, who would you want this purchase to go to? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Again, yeah. please don't ever put that survey question live. That sounds like that sounds like a Sam McNerney yeah. uh, question that that gets asked. I think. You know, I I am lucky enough to say that uh, he was a big part of my early days training and sort of taking the um, the academic in me and and evolving that into a a, a functional business professional. Yeah, so yeah. it is definitely a Sam question. <laughs> nice. But it's, you know, in this sort of uh, really terrible example that I've thrown <laughs> into the ring, you know, it's less about the answer to the question and more about like, it plants an additional nugget, even if you aren't getting folks to respond, um, which is the other piece of if you're putting survey questions out there that aren't innovative, that aren't pushing the envelope, you sort of run the risk of one, them assuming that, you know, not that it's spam, but that, oh, I don't know where my data is going. I don't know what it's doing. Da, da, da. Do they really care? But two, that's how you're showing up as a brand, right? You're yeah. putting kind of a standard boilerplate question that I've seen before. And I don't get a sense that you care about me, right? If, if the words don't even mention like, 
the team, the product team behind the shoes you just bought are so excited for you to have them. Yeah. Like they would love to know why you purchase these shoes so that they can ma- keep making shoes that you love in the future. Yeah. Right. Which then sort of it, it feels personal. It, it feels like your brand is talking to you and it feels like that data is going somewhere. We had a customer ask us last week. I was like, he goes, I just want to, I want the functionality to just be able to ask like 20 random customers a really silly or stupid question. And it was just because like we have their attention and like, who knows what might come out of it. Like, I don't want to ask everyone, like, that's not important, but it's just like, as someone's like, was it raining when you placed your order today? Um, just like something random that probably isn't going to provide a value, but someone might start writing in an open-ended response. It's just like, well, actually it was and like, and this is why I thought of your brand because yeah. of the rain. It's like, well, I would have never thought about that. And like something that started off maybe as like a little, gimmicky like hey let's just edit this question kind of turns into this whole dialogue internally around like okay maybe we should think about this thing you know it's it's sort of interesting because sort of the i'm just going to use the word the industry right kind of marketing all these folks as a whole have really made this shift towards data-driven thinking and strategy and insight which is great we all want that but the reality is that human brains they pay more attention to stories Right. And they've actually shown this in in kind of fMRI machines and neuroscience that when you're told a story, your brain sort of lights up in all of these exciting ways versus if you're given a data point, it's it doesn't necessarily have the same reaction, even though the data point in the story might be communicating the same thing. Right. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes it's it's one qualitative response out of a thousand that you look at and go, wow. Yeah. We have a customer who uses our open-ended question functionality grabs all their responses and then sorts by character length because he's mm. really eager to read what the people who are typing the most have to say. Mm. I feel like we just had this conversation, Matt, about net promoter score, right? And like one of the, one of the flaws of NPS is that concept of like, well, only, only nines and tens are like the, are, are the real success stories, but that there is this evidence done through some research that showed like the six, sevens and eights, were the people who were the most knowledgeable of the product or service and they had the most to say. And so, and like the fact that if I know a lot about something and I like it a lot or like a particular product, right. And I give it an eight, you know, that really means I like it a lot. And in the grand scheme of what it could be, I'm very satisfied. Right. Um, as opposed to someone who knows little about it and is just like, this is a 10 cause it's amazing and it's great, but like, they're not going to be as big of an advocate as someone like me who knows the ins and outs of, of the industry or of the problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are what are some other tactics that kind of just pop up in your mind as as far as best practices people should be aware of? Ask yourself what's the true problem that I'm trying to solve, and oftentimes that can sort of be be your steward and guiding light throughout the research and insights process, whatever that may look like. Uh, I think I already spoke to this, but there's more data out there than you think. Google is a powerful tool. You know, if you can't uh, collect survey data or or long qualitative insights, go to Reddit, right? Are your customers there? Like just spend time in the digital landscape, getting to know your customer through effectively free mechanisms. Do a desk, yeah. do a desk search. It's great. In reference to that whole MPS thing, I would, that's basically my perception of, well, there's a few perceptions of Reddit, but, but as far as what we're talking about, like Reddit is basically the land of your sevens and eights, right? Like the people who totally know a lot maybe more than you about, about what you're doing and have a lot to say about it. And like, that is, that's a a gem for market research. Yeah. A hundred percent. 
one that that I, I often have to remind myself as sort of an advocate on behalf of a brand is you are a customer, you are not the customer. Oh, and preach. so fight your instinct to treat everybody as you treat yourself because their reason to engage with your product, it might be different than yours. And finally, and this is my favorite one, is test, test, test. We live in this amazing digital world. There are excellent survey partners out there like Enquire, where you can just throw out quick stuff into the universe. And there's really a universe where, you know, you can still sort of be meeting your growth goals, your communications objectives while still testing things along the way. Good, good guidance and uh, a pleasure to have you on to uh, drop that knowledge on us. I appreciate it. Good. Glad to help. And uh, look forward to see what, uh, what you do with your new project here. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to be here. Today, folks. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and rating the show. If you want to learn about Lily's work to bring the benefits of decentralized finance to smartphones worldwide, check out cello.org or follow at CofflerLily on Twitter. If you want to chat with Enquire Labs, head on over to EnquireLabs.com. See you next time. Oh,